0: During the season of Lent, we are journeying through the book of Mark. Um, Unfortunately, um, we're only able to spend about five, six weeks through the book of Mark. Um, And so what we're going to do is take the first few chapters and then the last few chapters as we go through this journey. Uh, Last week, we looked at Mark chapter one um, and... uh, We started off with perhaps one of the more challenging sort of introductions because Jesus, from the very get go, lays out plainly what it means to follow Him. Uh, Return of the King is the sermon series title. And uh, just a quick, uh, it's a pretty nice graph, just a quick, quick um, introduction slash encouragement. I want to ask you guys to continue to pray and also think about folks you could invite for our Good Friday and Easter services that are coming up. Those will be wonderful opportunities as you continue to pray for your friends, family, co-workers, and neighbors who don't know Jesus yet to be able to invite them to those weekend services where they get to hear the gospel of Jesus. So I want to encourage you to do that. Um, I want to go ahead and look, uh, uh, put, put this slide up, and uh, I want you to take a look at this slide. Um, career, money and possession, self-image, leisure time, friendships, boyfriend, girlfriend, marriage, private thought life, children, physical health, maintenance, church involvement, grades. So here comes Jesus in Mark chapter 1, and he says this. He says, for anybody that wants to follow me, you have to hate your mother, father, brothers, and sisters even your own life, and he says, carry the cross and follow me. And we said last week, here's essentially what he is saying. He's saying, your relationship with me has to be so enduring, so so complete, so unconditional, so passionate, so intentional, that all the other attachments, all the other things in your life will seem like hate in comparison. He says that if you want to follow me, every other thing in your life that you cherish, that you value, that you live for are so distant in priority that it feels like, seems like hate in comparison. Jesus says to anybody that wants to follow me, it's not just that you make me a top priority in your life. Jesus says you make me the only priority. In your life. Um, Not just the top priority. You're more important than this, you're more important than that. Jesus says, make me the only, the only, the only priority in your life. That is the cost, Jesus said, of discipleship. Now, for a lot of us, we go, well, I'll obey you if, well, I'll thank you if. There's a difference between a follower of Jesus, a disciple, and a very moral person, religious person, a church person is this. That there are no ifs in your life. Because here's the deal, church. If there are any ifs in your life, I got news. You are the throne of your life. I am sitting on the throne of my life. If there are any ifs to our, if there are any conditions to ifs to our obedience and to our surrender, we are on the throne of our lives. Call it what it is. We are on the throne. We'll consider God's recommendations. We'll consider God's suggestions. But ultimately we're saying, I maintain the authority to rely on my wisdom, my discernment, my smarts, About these areas of my life. And Jesus says, to anybody who wants to follow me, there's a transfer of authority from your wisdom and your will to my wisdom and my will. He makes it plain. He makes it plain. Last week we saw this picture. To the crowds, he says. So it's not like he said to the... Sunday people, you know, if you follow me, there will be joy and joy eternal. And then he turned to the 12 really serious disciples and said, hey, and there's this thing called the cross. And if you follow me, there's this thing called the cross. Jesus says, to anybody, the cross, death. To your will. See, this is the reason why, and I've been preaching this for 12 years To anybody who encountered Jesus, people didn't respond the way we respond, you know. A lot of us respond to Jesus, what I call the deadly spiritual middle. Do you know what that is? The deadly spiritual middle. (laughs) You know, church people go, it's lukewarmness. I call it the deadly spiritual middle. That's this. When we hear and encounter Jesus and people go, oh, that's pretty cool. I like him. Oh, that's pretty cool. I admire him. He was such a great teacher. He has some wonderful things to say. Nobody in the Bible that encountered Jesus and heard him admired him, liked him. C.S. Lewis was right. He says if you encounter the true Jesus, there's only three responses. One, you'll hate him because he was a liar. He knew he wasn't God, but he claimed to be. Or you'll run in fear because he's an absolute crazy lunatic who knew uh, or didn't have no sense to know that he was a God. Or you'll fall down and worship him as Lord. He says you only respond one of three ways. You hate him because he is a liar. You fear him because he was crazy. Or you worship him as Lord. Nobody who encountered the true Jesus shrugged their shoulders and said, Dad! That's nice. Nobody. Deadly spiritual middle. You hear Jesus, you get worked up one way or another. You either have to stamp out Christian altogether or you fall down and you worship him as Lord. There is no deadly spiritual middle in response to Jesus. Are you hearing me? What's your response in encounter of Jesus? Shrug, oh, I like him. He's some good things to say. He told people to love one another. Somebody else said this. Then you're making a mockery out of history. He said, Jesus is a nice guy who told everybody to love each other. You're making a mockery out of history because why would anybody want to crucify Mr. Rogers? Precisely. So my question to you and I is as we go through the sur season of Lent, you got to ask, am I in this deadly spiritual middle? Shrug. No, no, nice. I kind of, or as he sang throughout today, he is king. He is lord. It's hating all these other things to follow this incomparable Jesus. Uh, Somebody always then then it says. Peter, that's the, the problem with the world today is that we've got all these radicals, we've got all these extremists, you know, all these people that are too serious. And we all know a Christian who's self-righteous, who's arrogant, who's extreme and radical, so on and so forth. But here's the thing you've got to know. Jesus never said, be moderate. Jesus never said, just chill out about me, okay? Don't get too serious. You know what Jesus did say? He'd come and go, you're radically zealous, but you're not radically humble. You're an extremist for obedience, but you're not extremist when it comes to love. Jesus never said to somebody, be moderate. He said, you're not extreme enough. Be extremely humble, wise, loving, just. Are you hearing? Okay. Okay. So Jesus today will come and go, I'm a healer. He's a wonderful healer. But again, here's this Jesus who comes and says, But my healing doesn't come the way you expect. We come to Jesus and go, this is where it hurts. And Jesus goes, we'll get to that. But we have to go to some other place first. How do I trust you? It's by my stripes you are healed. How do I know you love me? It's by my wounds you are healed. How do I know that I can give my life to It's because my wounds were opened that your wounds could close. Mark 2 is where we are this morning. Mark 2. It might be a familiar passage to you. Verse 1. A few days later, when Jesus again entered Capernaum, the people heard that he had come home. They gathered in such large numbers that there was no room left, not even outside the door, and he preached the word to them. Verse three, some men came, bringing him a paralyzed man carried by four of his friends. Verse four, since they could not get him to Jesus because of the crowd, they made an opening in the roof above Jesus by digging through it and then lowered the mat that Jesus was lying on. We're going to spend like two minutes on this, so here's a question I want to ask you, okay? Because it's not the whole point of the text, but what are you doing to bring your friend to Jesus? What are you doing to bring your friends to Jesus? Because we as a church actually believe that that's a good thing. What are you doing to bring your... These guys, of this early friend, want so much for their friend to see Jesus. They go out of their way to bring him to him. But you know that statistically, they've been tracking this for years. Things like big crusades, Billy Graham Christ, or evangelistic outreaches, three-fourths of the people give their lives to Christ do you know that they were what? Brought by their friends, by their Christian friends who brought them so they could hear the gospel. You and I know people in our lives who don't know Jesus. Actually, for some of us, the problem is we don't know anybody or have significant relationships with anybody who know, doesn't know Jesus. And they're pretty much moving in the same direction of us. And Jesus says, what are you and I willing to do to bring our friends to Jesus? By the way, if you have people that don't know Jesus, and this is my experience, it's really hard. You have to be creative because a lot of folks use excuses, right? Like, uh, I don't know where it is. Great, I do know where it is. I'll come pick you up. Well, I forgot. I know. So Hong Kong, I'm here. Got some muffins, some donuts, some coffee. Uh, I'm just wondering, when's the last time you invited somebody to... Sunday service or small group? When's the last time you brought a meal to a friend who was sick? When's the last time you brought actually a Bible to someone who said, look, read for yourself? When's the last time you bought somebody a book that really impacted you? What are you and I willing to do to bring our friends to Jesus? Verse 5. Uh, when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralyzed man, Son, your sins are forgiven. And at this point, there's at least uh, two very perplexed groups here. Who are they? They are the, the Pharisees would be one of them. Thank you, Darius. <laughs> I love the way he said that, the Pharisees. The Pharisees. Who are the others? The friends Why? So here are their friends. They take their friend up the stairs to the roof. By the way, all houses back then had roofs. There was a big place where people hung out. So they take their friend to Jesus. It's crowded to get through the door. They tear open this roof. They lower the guy down. And Jesus looks at the friend and says, Son, your sins are forgiven. Why are the friends surprised? Because they are waiting to hear what? Stand up and walk. Jesus doesn't say, stand up and walk. He says what? Your sins are forgiven. The friends have no idea about guilt or sin or forgiveness, but Jesus does. And here is what Jesus is saying. Jesus is saying, you think you know the main problem in your life, but you We always go to Jesus and we go, This is the main thing. And Jesus lovingly pushes back and he says, You think this is the main thing, but it's not the main thing. We'll get to that, but we got to get to here first. Um, I'm going to unpack this, okay? So hear it first, be shocked, and then I'm going to pack it. The main problem, Jesus says, for all of us in our lives is not our suffering, it's our sin. Jesus looks at this man and he says, I know you're hurting. I know that there have been things done to you that you have no control over. And we'll get to that. And Jesus heals the man. He deals with his illness. And it's a powerful, wonderful thing. But Jesus says, but before I get to that, I got to get to some other place first. Now, that's hard to embrace, but it's incredibly empowering. Because here's what Jesus is saying. Jesus is saying things have been done to you you've experienced horrendous things you have experienced a ton of pain in your life because of these things but here's the thing you can't do anything about those things that have been done to you but you can do something about how you respond to it and that actually is incredibly empowering to tell somebody. Here's what Jesus is saying, and I'm going to push you guys because this is one of those Sundays where it's going to hurt before we could heal. Jesus is driving this man deep. He's driving you and I deep. Jesus is saying, by coming to me and simply asking for your body to be healed, you're not going deep enough. You have underestimated the depths of your longings, the depths of the deep longings of the human heart. You're not going deep enough. In actuality, here's what Jesus is saying. Everyone in the world who is paralyzed is of course going to want every fiber of their being to walk. It's only natural and it's only right. But like you and me, this man would have been resting all of his hopes in what? all of his hopes in the ability to walk. This man like you and me is coming to Jesus and saying, if only I could walk, then I would never be unhappy. Then I will never be discontent. Then all my problems will be solved. Then I know that everything will be right. And Jesus is saying, you're not going deep enough. Because the discontent of the human heart Goes really, really deep. You and I are exactly in this man's shoes. We come to Jesus and we go, This is the main thing. And Jesus says, I'm going to take you deeper. Why? Because the moment that we are healed, if that's all Jesus does, after the euphoria, Jesus says, Wait two months, wait four months. Then what happens? You know what happens. Then we get to the place of go in. that's it. And Jesus says, I have to take you deep. Um, um. Cynthia Heimel, a writer for the Village Voice. She knew a number of people who are struggling actors and actresses working in restaurants and punching tickets at theaters. Then these people become famous. So she writes this article about her interactions with these people. This is what she says. When they were struggling, people like all of us saying, If only I could make it in the business, then my life would be fine. When they were like that, If only I had this, if only I had that, then not be happy. When they didn't have it, they were like the rest of us. They were stressed. They're kind of driven. They tended to get angry. They tended to get upset. But when they actually got the deepest desire of their hearts, they became awful human beings. They became unstable, erratic, manic. She says, they didn't just become arrogant. When they, when they got what they wanted, it became worse. They became even unhappier than they used to be. And here's what she says in order to explain it. She says, I pity celebrities. No, I really do. Celebrities once, perfectly pleasant human beings. But now their wrath is awful. You see? They wanted fame. They worked. They pushed. The morning after... Each one of them became famous, however. They wanted to take an overdose because that giant thing they were striving for, that thing that was going to make everything okay, that thing that was going to make their lives bearable, that thing that was going to provide them with personal fulfillment and happiness had happened. And yet, they were still them. The disillusionment turned them howling and insufferable. You see, they had finally gotten the thing for which they said, if only I get that, then everything will be okay. And it wasn't. And then she takes a statement, comes right out of Romans 1, when the Bible says part of God's judgment is he gave to human beings, what? He gave them over to their desires. Listen to what she says. I'm going to put it up here. She says, I think when God wants to play a really rotten practical joke on you, he grants you your deepest wish and then giggles merely when you realize you want to kill yourself. Do you know what Jesus is saying to this paralytic? She's saying this paralytic. I love you too much to play this practical joke on you. Jesus is saying this paralytic, I'm not going to play this practical, I am not going to grant you, listen, I am not going to grant you your deepest desire until it's no longer your deepest desire. Jesus says, because I love you, I am not going to grant you your deepest desire. Listen, until I lovingly change your deepest desire until that's me. It's the most loving thing he can do. The essence of sin is idolatry. The essence of sin is you and I walk in here every Sunday. And the reason why we're so burnt out and tired Essence of sin is Monday through Saturday. We're walking around going, my identity, my significance, my worth. This is where I find it. This is where I find it. If I could only walk. If I could only run. If I could make it. If I had a relationship. If I had him. If I had her. If my house was okay. If my children were behaving. If my career is successful. Every single second of our lives. And Jesus says, you're looking to those things to save you. And you and I would not use that word. That's not my savior. Jesus says, when you look to those things to give you that sense of I'm okay. You're looking to those things to save you. And here's the thing about those things saving you. When you finally get it, you're going to be angry. You're going to be empty. You're going to be unhappy. And when you fail it, when you fail at getting those things, the sense of condemnation to go, whoa. Some of you walking in here and today you're going, This is my problem. If I only had that. And Jesus lovingly says, we'll get to that, but I got to go somewhere first. Is this making any sense? Okay. So the, hmm, is that because you're going, all right. I know this is one of those rah, rah, yes, thank you, Jesus, kinds of sermons. Jesus is taking you and I deep. Listen, I'm right there with you. We think the biggest problem in our lives is we need healing, relationship, a future, a career. And that's why we often go to Jesus. Instead of going to get God, we go to Jesus to get our problems and our paralysis fixed. And yes, Jesus cares about our suffering. And he spent most of his time fixing the suffering that he saw around him and relieving it. But I'm telling you, he is much more interested in a deeper healing. This is my problem, Jesus says. We have to go deeper. This is the main place that hurts, Jesus says. We'll get to that. But first, I need to take you to some other place. And that process is you saying, I need some help to reach my goal. And Jesus says, that's the essence of your problem. So I'm not going to grant your goals until I become your goal. Listen, you guys. If you're sitting here, inside it's just emotional, physical and others. You're going, this is where I hurt. This is where I hurt. This is my need. This is my need. And it's probably one of those categories that we flashed up front. What is your response to Jesus saying, I know you're hurting there, but I got to take you someplace first. Is it, but I know best. This is my hurt. Or is it, I've transferred my authority depending on my wisdom and will to me, to you. I've transferred that authority. Here's a practical application. It's not really practical, but it's something for you to chew on. You have to trust Jesus long-term. What do I mean? You have to Jesus. Eugene Peterson said it this way. It takes long obedience in the same direction. We're all different, but I would think that it's really hard for us to read this passage without most of us at least beginning to weep If not outwardly, internally, to hear Jesus say, you'll get to that, but I got to take you to some other place first. You have to let me take you deep into your heart and change the main thing your heart wants. You know, in our church, if you come long enough, we'll talk about God wants your time. God wants your money. God wants your worship. It's not because God needs it. God doesn't need your time. He's always been and he always will be. God doesn't need your money. He owns the thousand cattle, right? A thousand hills. God doesn't need our worship. If we don't worship, the Bible says the rocks and the trees will cry out. Do you know why God says I want that? Because God's saying those things are outward signs of an inward reality. God says I don't need those things. I want you. I want you. And those things are often pointers to what you and I and our hearts really want. And Jesus, Jesus, we talked about this last week, follow the thread. Jesus will take us on a journey, on a process in which every single one of us in our self-kinship says, this is what I need, this is what I need, this is what I need. This, this is where I hurt, this is where I hurt, Jesus where I hurt. And Jesus says, you're missing the point. And I'll take you on a journey where the main thing becomes the main thing. Where well, the main thing becomes the main thing. where well, the main thing becomes the main thing. Can anybody relate to this? If you begin to relate to Jesus, are there things that he's going to do, he's going to say, he's going to bring in? You go, no, this is not what I expected. Anybody? And you realize sooner than later that your list is not his list. What's most important to you is not what's most important to him. And at that point, we go, I follow, not turning to the left or the right. Trusting that he is saying, I'm taking you to the main thing. You think that's the main thing, but I'm taking you to the main thing. And I'm not going to bail on you, God. I'm not going to bail on you, God. Verse 5. Here's how you know. That you could trust him. This is, And I love preaching on, on this. And for those of you that are inviting your friends that don't know Christ or, or just kind of checking out Christianity, I will every single sermon present some aspect of this. Verse 5, when he saw their faith, he said to the paralyzed man, son, your sins are forgiven. And the powerful, amazing thing about that is this, that everywhere in the Bible, it says that God doesn't forgive you unless you first repent to him. Everywhere in the Bible, it says that God doesn't forgive unless we repent him. And yet Jesus says to this man, you're forgiven. How? How is this possible? Verse 8, a little bit down we see, Mark tells us that Jesus is able to read people's motives and their attitudes and their hearts. Jesus is able to read our minds. And what Mark is getting to us here, and this is so powerful, is this. Jesus knows this man's heart. Jesus is sensing in this man's heart, even though this man hadn't even said it loud, Jesus is sensing in this man's heart an inarticulate and imperfect yearning for mercy and for grace. And amazing thing is, that's enough for Jesus. That's enough for Jesus. This man comes to Jesus and can't even say the words. And yet Jesus senses in this man's heart an inarticulate and imperfect yearning for mercy and for grace. And this Jesus is so tender. He's so eager to bless, so eager to forgive, that he responds to even an inarticulate, imperfect yearning of the heart. Is this good news? See, I meet so many people who say, If I want to get my right with God, what do I have to do? Tell me just the right thing to do and I'll do it. If I want to get right with God, I have to say the right things. Tell me what to say. You know what Jesus says? He says simply, just come to me. Just come to me. Just come. But I can't find the, just come. Just come. Just come to me. And Jesus says, and I'll find an opening, as small as it may be, and I'll pour so much of my grace and mercy into you that I'll come after you. This is amazing news to me. It's amazing news to me that this Jesus, why would you not trust someone like him? Why would you not worship someone like him? He says, an imperfect, an imperfect, inarticulate yearning of your heart. Jesus says, I see it. And by the way, the good news is when you finally pursue him and believe, you realize that he's been pursuing you and following you all along. Because he's the author of faith. Let me just be really quick about this. Really quick about this. That means if you're a non-Christian here and you're going, Peter, Peter, I want to believe. I want to believe. You know what Jesus said? Jesus just come. Even in the Bible, when people had a hard time believing, they didn't turn off their brains. They said, "Help my unbelief. Help me." And Jesus, that's all I'm looking for. That's all I'm looking for. That small opening, and w-. this is the thing amazing about Jesus. Small. He's aggressive with his grace. He's aggressive. There it is, opening. He pours out his grace, pours out his mercy. And just when you go, oh, I'm able to believe, you realize, oh, you were there all along pursuing me. Is this amazing news? Christians, can I talk to you for a second? That means if you're a Christian, I need to remind all of us this morning faith is not a virtue, it's a gift. Faith is not a virtue. It's a gift. So don't get cocky. Don't get arrogant. And if you believe more, don't be hard on oh believe less. Do we really think that the reason why we believe is because we're smarter? We're more enlightened? Because we're more moral? We are saved by faith through grace. And the faith to believe, Paul says, has even been given by God. And that, my friends, is the gospel according to Jesus. So if you're sitting here this morning, by the way, is there a time where we needed more humble, more gentle, more thoughtful Christians in this world than ever? What will make us gentle, humble, thoughtful Christians that aren't self-righteous? It's this knowledge. Faith is not a virtue. It's a gift. I'm believing because you pursued me. And here I am. If you're not a Christian today, if you're not a Christian today, I, I, listen, if you're not a Christian today, Just go to him and say, help me believe. Help my unbelief. Jesus, just a small opening, small opening. He knows your heart. He knows your heart. He knows your heart. And he says, come in and I'll pour out, pour out my grace, pour out my mercy and my forgiveness. So good. That's why we love Jesus in this church. Verse 6. Now, some teachers of the law were sitting there thinking to themselves, why does this fellow talk like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Actually, they're totally right. They're totally right. Tom, Rich, and Harry walk into a room. Tom punches Rich in the face. Blood everywhere. Harry walks up to Tom and he says, Tom, I forgive you. To which Tom goes, What the heck are you talking about? <laughs> can forgive me. Rich could forgive me. I punched Rich in the face. Harry says, No, 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 I forgive you. What is he saying? You could only forgive someone if the sin is against you. What is Jesus saying when he says, I forgive you? Pharisees know what he's saying. Jesus is claiming to be what? To be God. To be creator. Why? Because the only person that can say to another human being, all sins are against me, is the one who created you. The only one can say that is your Lord. Is the only one who can say, I created you for a purpose. And if you violate that purpose, you're violating my commands. So when you lie, you're breaking one of my commands. When you trample on another human being, you're actually trampling on me. It's an astounding claim. Pharisees knew exactly what Jesus was saying. Jesus was saying, I'm not claiming to be a teacher. I'm not claiming to be a philosopher. I'm claiming to be God. I'm claiming the Son of God. I need to say this. Some of you heard that Jesus never claimed that he was the Son of God. I just read this on another article. Jesus never claimed the Son of God. Read the Bible. Read the Bible. That's what I say. Read the Bible because you can't read the New Testament without Jesus saying over and over and over and over again I'm God. I'm Son of God. I'm God. I'm God. I'm Son of God. I'm God. Jesus is over and over again claiming that he is God. Why is that important? Jesus says, when God, when I came into this world, if Jesus is who he is, then it changes everything. Jesus didn't come and say, I'm a teacher. Jesus came and said, I'm son of God and come in flesh. I didn't just come to show you the way to righteousness. I came to be your righteousness. I didn't just come to show you the way. Listen, like all these other prophets and teachers, I came to what? Be your way. Jesus can come and say, here's a list of things that the other prophets told us to do. And if you obey them, you can be saved. Jesus came and said, I am the way, I am the truth, and the life. And if this Jesus, listen, if this Jesus is who he says he is, then he can demand anything. Then our relationship with this Jesus has to be all-encompassing. Then our relationship with this Jesus requires total commitment then this jesus has the right to say to you and me if you want to find life lose it for my sake this jesus has the authority to come and say nothing is worth losing me for anything that hinders you from coming to me pluck it out cut it off this jesus comes and gives an all-out total commitment demand says anyone who wants to follow me why he claimed to be god here's the good news that's why he could forgive sins that's why I can say to you and me your sins are forgiven. Your sins are forgiven. Many other religions of the world have these rules that people said and you need to obey them to get in favor with God. Jesus comes and comes and says, "I forgive you by grace through my death and resurrection." Forgiven. That's why he can do that. Cuz he's God. Because he's God, and we're going to continue to look at that throughout this series. Jesus is God, verse 8. Immediately, Jesus knew in his spirit that this was what they were thinking in their hearts, and he said to them, why are you thinking these things? Can I just look at that one more time? Sorry, sometimes I just, it just cracks me up. Immediately, Jesus knew in his spirit that this was what they were thinking in their hearts, and he said to them, why are you thinking these things? You know, you think at this point the Pharisees would rethink their position about Jesus not being God. You know what I mean? You're not God! I could read your mind. <laughs> OK. all right. It's one point for your column, Jesus. You could read my mind, really? Yeah. Yeah. Verse nine, which is easier to say to this paralyzed man, "Your sins are forgiven?" or to say, "Get up, take your mat and walk." Verse 10. But I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. So he said to the man, I tell you, get up, take your mat, and go home. He got up, took his mat, and walked out in full view of them all. This amazed everyone. And they praised God, saying, we have never seen anything like it. Here's the thing. We're almost done. Which is easier, to say your sins are forgiven or say get up, take your mat, and walk Jesus knows what they're thinking. The friends are thinking, just like you and me, it's way harder to heal than it is to say forgive your sins. It's way harder to heal somebody and to say your sins are forgiven. And Jesus is saying, is that really easier to say your sins are forgiven than to heal? Is that really easier? Which is harder, to say your sins are forgiven or to, listen, to effect forgiveness or to, you know what Jesus is saying? And here we go, you guys, marching each Sunday towards Good Friday. Jesus is saying to them, you have no idea how much harder. You have no idea how much harder it will be for me to have to put myself in a position where I can say to the unforgiven your sins are forgiven. Any miracle healer can say, get up and walk. And Jesus says, you have no idea how much harder it will be for me to put myself in a position where I can say to the unforgiven, your sins are forgiven. He's pointing to the cross. Can I press you further? Can I press you further? It's because it's because Jesus became immobile on the cross that that man will be able to what? To walk. It's because Jesus was cast out eternally on the cross from the embrace of his father that Jesus could say to sinners, what? Come in. Jesus is saying, do you have any idea how much harder it will be? Because it's only the savior of the world who will be able to say to sinful humanity, because I've done this, your sins are forgiven. Which is harder. A miracle worker saying, walk are the Savior of the world, bearing the sins of humanity, facing the eternal wrath of God, saying, because of this, your sins are forgiven. Do you know why this is important? you know why? Can I just spell it out? Can I I spell it out? Because when Jesus comes to you and me, and I'm talking to you, when Jesus comes to you and me and says, you think that's the main place you hurt, but it's not. It's not. I'm going to take you to some other place. When you come and say, I'm suffering here, sometimes God brings healing in that area, and we praise God for healing and deliverance. We do. We say, thank you, Jesus. But oftentimes when it doesn't come, and he says, but can you trust me to the place that I take you so that you can be eternally forever changed? Can you trust me when I say? That the only way to grant you your deepest wish is for you to no longer say, this is my deepest wish. Can you trust me to take you to those places? What will give you the assurance? I can trust you. It's that. It's that. Some of you have already been there. You've already known in this journey. You go to God and go, This is where I hurt. And you know, God saying to you, That's not where you hurt, child. Sierra, are you resonating with what I'm saying? Say amen. The sister went back there with a big grin, bobbing her head, because you and I know we've gone to Jesus' name. This is where I hurt. And he says, That's not. Let me take you. We go, No. And Jesus says, how will you trust me in that? Is to know that I did this. I was nailed immobile so you could walk. I was cast out of the city so you could be brought in. How can you trust me, Jesus says? Because of the cross. What are you most angry about? You know why I ask you that? Because right now you're going, this is where I hurt. What are you most angry? At? Do you know why you're angry? Because you're saying, I have to have this. And you're blocked from getting it. So you're angry. Can you put up that list again, Lisa? What are you most fearful about? Why are you fearful worried? Because I must have this. This is where I hurt. And Jesus says, you're afraid of losing it. Uh, lastly, what are you most despondent about? I must have. And you failed in that area. You've messed up in that area. What are you angry about? What are you fearful about? What are you despondent about? Another way of asking, where are you hurting? And Jesus saying, you think it's that, but it's not. I'll take you there. I could take you someplace else. Um, Cece, you can come on up. One of my favorite. One of my favorite authors. Anybody familiar with a woman named Joni Erickson Tata? Is it Joni, Johnny, Johnny, Johnny Erickson Tada, Johnny? Read some of her books, heard lots of her talks. She became a quadriplegic as a teenager in a diving accident. By the way, if you have an opportunity, Google her and watch some of her testimonial videos. Years later, stage three cancer. On top of um this is an interview. One of the interviews. So someone said, "Don't you think that God's laying on you a little too much?" <laughs> this to childerman like, I guess. Cancer on top of chronic pain on top of decades of quadriplegia. And this is her answer. I have a hard time reading this without choking up. God is still doing a deeper healing, testing and trying and seeing if there's any offensive way in me you'll often hear me quoting from the common book of common prayer she says i pray all the time almighty god we have erred and strayed from your ways like lost sheep we follow too much the devices and desires of our own hearts we have offended against your holy laws we have left undone those things which we had have done and we have we have done those things which we ought to have not done and there's no health in us and she says i love those words and i hate those words So don't be thinking that for me. In heaven, the big deal after I get to see Jesus is to get my new body. No, 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 no. I want a glorified heart. I want a glorified heart that no longer twists the truth a glorified heart that no longer resists God, a glorified heart that, looks, that looks no uh, longer looks for an escape, gets defeated by pain, becomes anxious or worrisome, and manipulates my husband with precisely time phrases. When people come up to me, Christians usually have the Pentecostal charismatic persuasion, they say they want to pray for my healing, and I never say no. If you want to pray for my healing, bring it on. But I'll say to them, may I tell you some specific things about which I really, really need prayer for healing? They get so excited, and I say, would you please ask God to get rid of my peevish attitude in the morning when I wake up? And please, I have such a sour disposition when there's too much work on my desk. And you know, I'm really a workaholic. So I wish you would pray about that too. And I will go on and on telling them all the things in my heart that yet need to be uprooted and confessed before God and repented of and healed to me, physical healing had always been the big deal. But to God, my soul was a much bigger deal. That's when I began searching for a deeper healing, not just physical healing, although I was still praying for such. I asked for a deeper healing, and God heard my you saying to Jesus right now Jesus this is this is where I'm hurting and what is your response to Jesus says child